So this evening, the service, we are honoring uh, someone very special, or honoring the memory of somebody very special, Dwight Pryor, who was for 20 years our teacher, our mentor, my confidant, my counselor, and he's a man who had an incredible uh, impact on my life and on the life of this community here at Christ Church in Jerusalem, and uh, we owe him a huge, huge debt of gratitude. And it's very easy to forget about people when they die and not to remember and not to honor those who've gone before us. It's even easier is to have some anxiety about influence. Who knows what anxiety of influence is? We live in an age where everybody wants to be original, where everybody wants to have their own uh, ideas or to come up with uh, uh, some thought, some solution that they can say, hey, this is mine. And I think that's a disease Yes, in the day and age in which we live, perhaps it's the real epidemic that is afflicting us or afflicting many parts of our society. But Dwight was our teacher, and much of what we've learned and much of, the, of uh, our devotional life is based on what he taught us and how he lived it out in our presence. And so, again, we're grateful. I'm personally grateful because I don't think I'd be in this position today as the rector of Christ Church if it wasn't for Dwight Pryor. It's a long story. You can read about it in my testimony book that's coming out probably 25 years from now. So I'd like to... um, say some words about the text, the gospel text that we just read. And those of you who knew Dwight, or those of you who still listen to uh, his teaching uh, that comes from the Center for Judaic Christian Studies in Dayton, Ohio, will hear his influence. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've raised up mentors that you've raised up models so that we can follow them as they follow Christ. And we thank you for the life of Dwight Pryor, and we pray that his influence, his teaching, his example will continue to bear good fruit in in many years to come, and especially in this evening as we examine your word. Father, send your Holy Spirit into our midst to be our teacher. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Those of you who um, follow this broadcast, um, and I last I looked, I think there were 18 or 19 people around the world, and uh, we're really grateful for that uh, small cadre 
Um, by the way, don't fret. Your checks will be in the mail soon. We have to pay people to watch this broadcast. <clears throat> don't pay a lot, but still. Those of you who have uh, been following um, our um, walk through Luke, sorry, not through Luke this time, it's, this is the year of Mark, may remember that several weeks ago we began uh, with the opening verses in Mark, just around uh, the Feast of Epiphany, and uh, we read these words. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And what the, I believe this verse is saying is that um, John the Baptist and others were to prepare the way for Jesus. Now, what, is, what was the way of Jesus? Or what maybe, what is the way of Jesus? It was the way of the cross. Yes, it was to prepare, or to help, or to assist Jesus to go to Jerusalem, to die, and to, of course, to be raised from the dead. And Mark's gospel is a sad story of opposition, of actually people getting in the way. We have um, political uh, parties, religious figures, uh, his disciples, and unfortunately, even his family are all somehow opposing or hindering this way of the Lord, this way of the cross, a way of suffering that actually leads to life. And then we read um, a little further uh, two Sundays ago, we read a little, uh, we went uh, on a little further, and we read this verse, uh, it, or these two verses. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. And uh, I stopped and, uh, at that point and just recalled uh, what Dwight uh, often emphasized. And he said the gospel is not so much about you and me and what we do or what we should do about our sin, our justification, our righteousness, but it's about God's faithfulness first and foremost and that faithfulness that he exhibits in Jesus the Messiah. And so it's the gospel of God, right? Not the gospel of my personal salvation. Yes, we're saved, but we're saved because of what God does and what God does through his son, Jesus the Messiah. And then the verse comes, and this is the verse that you might say controls the story in the book of Mark. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And so here we have a uh, gospel. Yes, it's written uh, about the kingdom of God. That's going to uh, illustrate or demonstrate, uh, going to see what, how Jesus demonstrates what this kingdom is, of God is all about. And to talk to people about the kingdom of God is not very easy. Something that Dwight would emphasize over and over again, and I think something that we both learned from um, Bob Lindsay, who used to be the, who was at one time the, the, the Baptist pastor here in Jerusalem. And I 
had the challenge this week, last week, of um, had a challenge of speaking or going on a virtual tour. I went all around the United Kingdom every night for ten nights, and the subject was the kingdom of God. And I used some of Dwight's insights, some of my own, some from Bob Lindsay. Uh, Steve Notley, the Jerusalem School of Synoptic Studies, and some nights I spoke for an hour and a half. And I don't know that I was ever fully satisfied with my explanation. Sure, I gave lots of detail. I told people what it wasn't, but did I encapsulate it in a way that that uh, folks could walk away and say, "Yes, that's the kingdom of God"? And it occurred to me. When I was reading this passage, that there was something huge, you know, that I was missing, and it's actually tied up with the cross and the resurrection, because that's always a conundrum when you preach the kingdom. How does the kingdom, if it's a present reality, which it is, how does it connect with the cross? You know, you can scratch your head. What's the resurrection have to do with it? If the Holy Spirit. Yes, even before the cross is active and、uh, bringing healing and deliverance to people's lives, and then we read through this chapter that、uh, the last half of the last third of the、uh, chapter one of Mark, and we have、um, this confrontation with the devil. We have healing, and we have、uh, the healing of、uh, a man with with leprosy. And then, of course, then that raises a, another conundrum as well. If this is about the kingdom of God, what does the kingdom of God have to do with leprosy and healing of leprosy? And what does it have to do with this whole idea of ritual purity? And we, Jesus meets a man in the synagogue, and this man he has an impure spirit, which is a demon. So what, how does this all connect? And of course, if you ask many Christians,、uh, many many、uh, preachers and Bible commentators will tell us、uh, that old ritual stuff that uh, Jesus uh, uh, meets, yes, in、uh, daily Jewish life in the first century, he just sweeps it aside. You know, Jesus is about love. He is not about Jewish law or Jewish ritual. It does, it's irrelevant, and、uh, Jesus may have been a, good, a Jew, but he wasn't、uh, maybe a good Jew. He wasn't one who was very、uh, adhering very strictly to the Jewish commandments. Or you may meet people who will say something very similar. Yeah, that's in the book of Leviticus, but it's all fulfilled. It has nothing to do with us. But actually, it has everything to do with us, and I think it's a key to unlocking, yes,、uh, a deeper understanding of the kingdom of heaven, and that, or the kingdom of God, which is the same thing, and it's tied up with this idea or this concept of impurity, which we meet not only in this chapter but throughout the book of Mark. So, what is impurity? If we look to the book of Leviticus. Yes. Again, it's a book that we say, "Oh, it's all fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. It's irrelevant to us. Oh, it's so bloody. 
it's so confusing, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But actually, Leviticus might be the constitution of the Bible. It might be the bedrock on which the, uh, our understanding of God uh, should be built. Yes, because it talks about God's holiness, and it talks about uh, his character in a way that no other book of the Bible does. And so, instead of dismissing it, let's just think for a moment, yes? What kind of, what is impurity? And, and why is it so important? And again, what does this tell us about Jesus and the kingdom? Yes, about his identity and the power that he has. Well, first, uh, maybe some of you um, may be aware, yeah, that um, we have in uh, uh, chapters 11 to 15 of Leviticus a physical impurity. Sometimes it's called ritual impurity. And this physical impurity comes about, and it seems very strange to us, it comes about when certain things happen. So when we touch it, uh, we, when a Jew, uh, actually applies only to, to the Jewish people. It doesn't apply to uh, the world in general. Uh, but when a Jew t- touches a dead body, he becomes, she becomes impure. When a Jew um, has, a Jewish man, has sexual relations with his wife, he becomes impure. When a um, Jewish woman gives, uh, has her monthly period or gives birth to a baby, she becomes impure. When a person has skin disease of one kind or another, he or she becomes impure. Now that's ritual or physical impurity. And before we say, ah, Jesus has nothing to do with that, actually, throughout the Gospels, he's very attentive to that, to that issue. And whenever he healed somebody who is impure, he always tells them to follow the law of Moses or the commands of Moses and to go show yourself to a, pre- to the, a priest and offer a sacrifice. So that's one kind of impurity. And then... Um, or we should actually tell you what is the, the, the answer or the solution to becoming impure. The solution is going into the ritual immersion bath, going into a pool of living water and dipping yourself three times, and that cleanses. Now, it's very important for those of you who aren't familiar with impurity and the biblical impurity, it's very important to understand that impurity is not sin. Yes, we're not talking about sin. Yes, it is not a sin to become impure. Um, marriage is held in high esteem throughout the scripture. And sex within, within uh, the relationship of marriage is something that is uh, commended in the scripture. That's not a sin for a man and a woman to have sexual relations. But there is something that causes impurity. So it's not a sin to become impure, it's a sin to stay impure. Yes? It's a sin to stay impure. So that's the first thing. The second thing is moral impurity. If Israel 
engages in idolatry, or if Israel engages in immorality, or any kind of idol worship, Israel is defiled. Yes? And the, the answer to moral impurity is repentance. Yes, Israel must repent. And finally, there is a spiritual impurity, which you don't quite see in the Bible so much, but you see the beginnings of it. And that spiritual impurity is connected to the demonic. It's connected to evil spirits and it's connected to Satan. And uh, we'll see, for example, that we see that you might say the beginning of this in the book of Zechariah. Yes, and uh, Jews will take this understanding and then they will begin to further, you might say, uh, uh, reflect uh, on the reality of, of, of Satan. Uh, and in Zechariah, we have the, um, we have a verse, yes, that, um, sorry, here it is. It's at the end of Zechariah. It says on that set, chapter 13, verse 1, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from the spirit of impurity or cleanse them from sin and the spirit of impurity. On that day I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more. And so Jewish people began to understand began to understand that idolatry and the spirit of impurity, which they understand to be a demon, yes, are closely and intimately connected together. And it becomes very, very logical for Jews to start, in many instances, start calling demonic spirits unclean spirits or impure spirits in one way or another. The solution, yes, for this is exorcism, casting out a demon. And we talked about that actually several weeks ago as well. But for those who may not be convinced, maybe you remember our second reading. In our second reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about uh, idolatry and the worship of idols as being on one hand worthless. Yes, there's nothing behind a wooden idol or a stone statue that people are worshiping. It's complete nonsense that there's a God there. But at the same time, Paul says that kind of worship is actually a porthole for demons. There is something demonic Yes, behind uh, false worship or behind idolatry. All right, so again, that's a, a, a Jewish understanding that starts in the late, what we call Old Testament period, and of course continues into, uh, it continues into the first century or into the late, uh, into the late uh, second temple period. So here it is. Yes, we have... Spiritual impurity, we have moral impurity, we have physical impurity. And what is this all about? 
And people for the longest time would kind of scratch their heads and say, this doesn't make sense. I mean, why does God ask us to do this? In fact, you know, there's a whole uh, stream of Jewish thought that says, we don't understand this. God just said, do it, so we're going to do it. We're going to avoid, you know, a corpse. We're going to uh, go to the ritual immersion bath after a pregnancy. But it doesn't make sense. Now, it wasn't all that long ago that um, there was a Jewish scholar who lived around the corner from here. He was, his name was Jacob Milgram. And he saw something that seemed very obvious to him that uh, people maybe hadn't seen before. And I'm convinced that he's right because Jacob Milgram said all of this, especially the moral and the uh, physical, all of this is connected to one thing. And what is that one thing? It's connected to death. Yes? It's connected to the touching a dead body. It's death. Yes? Uh, a woman's afterbirth is something that was living that is dead. Yes? A man having sexual relations with his wife, something dies in the process. A woman's menstrual period, something dies. Skin disease, what's the whole deal with skin disease? Yes, skin, and we're not talking about traditional leprosy or Hansen's disease, but there are certain kind of skin diseases in which people look like they're rotting or decaying, right, after the body has died. And so to, that too is included. And what about idolatry and immorality? You know, the, the soul that sins shall what? Shall surely die. Death. And then we have spiritual, this demonic, right? Uh, with, you know, idolatry or all, uh, whatever, first associated with idolatry. But in general, Jews and Christians come to associate the devil with what? With the fall of Adam and Eve. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin? At, when Adam and Eve sin, death enters into the world. And of course, and it's in later Jewish and Christian tradition that we understand the one who tempted them was Satan. Yes? So all of this is about death. Death, death, death is all through Mark's gospel. Ironically, Jesus is going to his death in Mark's gospel. People, because they don't understand, are putting obstacles in the way. And Jesus, in every case, whether it's the man with the impure spirit or whether it is someone with leprosy or whether he's touching a woman who has a continual menstrual flow or whether he's touching the dead body of the Yair's daughter, he is confronting, yes, the forces of death. He is confronting death itself. And how is it possible that he overcomes death? Because the Holy One, God, in his holiness, yes, is bigger and greater than impurity. 
And the most beautiful example of that is in the ritual immersion bath. You know that when Jesus was uh, walking this earth, the Jewish people had a very heightened concern, yes, for physical impurity. And all over this country, wherever you go, uh, and you find remains from the time of Jesus, somewhat before, somewhat after, uh, any Jewish town or village, you will find a ritual immersion bath. And Jews would bring living water, rain water, or spring water, or river water, water really not touched by human hands. They would fill up a, a, a plastered pool, and those who became impure would uh, take off their clothes, walk in, and dip themselves three times. Now, the symbolism, as I said, is very beautiful because living water comes from God. And what it shows us, or what, the picture, what this is a picture of, is how God trumps death, how God is bigger than death, how God is more powerful than death. Death may be God's enemy, and death is certainly a parasite on his creation, and it's not his friend. And by the way, death doesn't come into the world. Death does not come into the world because God uses it as a punishment for sin, right? Death comes into the world because of sin. It's the law of the universe, not because it's some punishment. But once it comes into the world, what happens Yes, the devil uses it to enslave us. We are, most of us, even if we don't admit it, we're enslaved to the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that. And so consequently, it's not that Jesus is against, you know, the whole system of ritual impurity, as many Christians think, He's against impurity itself because impurity is always death or always the road to death. Yes, so the kingdom of heaven, when Jesus says that, you know, the kingdom of God is here, that God is beginning to rule and reign in a way that he hasn't done before, it's more than just, okay, there's healing, there's repentance, there's reconciliation. No, it is, a, it is pushing back death. And again, the author of this is the devil himself. And now it's not, I would say, it shouldn't surprise us that the first thing that Jesus does in the Gospel of Mark, his first act of power amongst the Jewish people, is what? Is to cast out a demon. When he goes in chapter 5, he crosses the lake and he goes into a Gentile, ter Gentile territory. Yeah, He meets... Who does he meet? He meets a demon-possessed man who's living in the tombs. The first thing that he does uh, with his so-called ministry amongst the Gentiles, which is not uh, intentional, by, by the way, it's, uh, uh, he doesn't go to the Gentiles on purpose, but the first thing that he does is to cast out a demon. And what, is, what does 1 John 3, 8 say? It says, the Son of Man appeared to do what? Who can complete the verse? The Son of Man appeared to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. And if any of us, yes, fear death, 
or we're running away from death, or we're not sure really, even though we're believers or Christians, you know, that uh, death has been defeated. Yes, death is defeated at the cross, ultimately defeated at the cross, and is defeated at the empty tomb. But Jesus begins his assault on death. He begins the counterattack already in chapter 1. Yes, the Gaza king, the, the, the good news of the kingdom of heaven is that death is coming to an end. And uh, we, as human beings, by the way, we're desperately sick. Yes, we're desperately sick. And what we need is life. What we need is eternal life. And that's, what, that's what's on offer here. Right? See, when that man in the synagogue says, I don't want, don't, a few verses before our gospel reading, uh, the man, Jesus enters the synagogue, he meets this man who's uh, literally in Greek, it says he's under the influence of the devil. Yes, he's in the devil's kind of orbit, you might say. And uh, Jesus says, or this man says, um, uh, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Meaning there's more than one demon involved here. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. Jesus, you know, who is, shares God's holiness, yes, because he comes from God, is part of the Godhead, yes, drives out death, defeats death for us. Now, if that's the case, if that's really what the kingdom of heaven is all about, we should remember that uh, Dwight used to tell us that the kingdom of heaven is not only about a person, Jesus, or about God his Father. And it's not only about God's inbreaking power into the lives of those of us who believe, his healing, restoring power. Yes. Uh, and let's not forget that uh, Jesus, 25% of the ministry of Jesus was uh, spent uh, combating the demonic. But the kingdom of God is about a people. It's about a people who make Jesus king. Yes. And so consequently, Jesus commissions us, commissioned his disciples, apostles, and then his disciples, and he commissions us to be partners, yes, in this kingdom of heaven, or to bring this message of life to other people. But how can we do that? Well, first I want to say that it's not going to happen unless we share, yes, some of, uh, some of the character of God, yes, that uh, Jesus imitates or that Jesus models with it for us. And that character, that first, and, that, uh, uh, first and foremost, that has to be compassion. And so in our chapter, uh, and while it, in our reading today, while it is a little tricky Yes, uh, textually, there's some back and forth. Yes, Jesus heals the man with leprosy 
in verse uh, 41 of chapter 1, he says he was filled with compassion. Being filled with compassion, he heals. Yes. Then it's that same Jesus, who, by the way, kind of can, can seem a little cranky in Mark's gospel. Okay, let's be honest, because we see the emotions of Jesus uh, laid bare in a way that we don't see uh, in the other three gospels. Uh, but also we see uh, uh, a tenderness um, that, may not, uh, that may not be exhibited in other gospels as well. And there's, an, there's another one where in chapter, um, chapter 6, Jesus sees the crowds, and seeing the crowds, he has compassion upon them. This is Mark 6, verse 34. He has compassion upon them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So what did Jesus do in his compassion? This reminds me of Dwight. Jesus taught them. They needed teaching. They needed Torah. Their lives needed guidance and direction and instruction. So, yeah. yeah. Teaching. And then... You know, there's a, a number of other examples, but I'll just, one more. And if you think this is all somehow kind of spiritual, in chapter 8 of Mark, when Jesus sees a large, when Jesus uh, turns uh, and uh, looks at a crowd of people that have been following him for three days, he says, the, the text tells us in Mark 8 too, he has compassion on them because they had nothing to eat because they had nothing to eat. If we are going to be, yes, if we're going to uh, uh, take up the ministry of, um, take up this ministry of the kingdom of heaven, which confronts death, yes, and we're agents of God's healing and restoration, then we better be prepared to be compassionate. And if we don't have that gift to ask for it, to have love for people in the, in the places where they're stuck or broken, yes, or dysfunctional, to be like Jesus. I think the, I want to mention just two other points. Yes, because if we have the assurance that Jesus defeats death and that the forces of death are, are being pushed back from the beginning of the gospel, and finally defeated, fully defeated at the end. Yes, when, when the power of Satan is broken. He hasn't gone away, but his power has been broken. He, one day he will be banished. But that day hasn't come yet. If we're convinced of that, if we're convinced that we have a hope, and that we have a reward, then we will be able to give our lives away. We will be able to serve like Jesus served. And not think to ourselves, oh, I'm a sucker. Oh, I'm a fool. I'm not getting rich like other people are getting rich. I'm not out, uh, you know, discovering new worlds or finding the real me or becoming authentic. You know, the woman that Jesus heals, Peter's mother-in-law, the woman that uh, he heals, she gets up and she serves 
Yes, that healing brings rest restoration and it brings, it brings service. Now, if, I think maybe some of you might be thinking, oh, right, yeah, she's a woman. And that's the only place, you know, for a woman in the first century and maybe even in, in our world today is get up and to organize hospitality. But the same word to serve that we read about in Mark, uh, in that portion of Mark, is the same word that uh, is used when the angels waited on Jesus or cared for Jesus in the wilderness while he was being tested, yes, with the wild beast. Or it's the same word in Mark chapter 10 when, when Jesus says to his disciples who are arguing about who's the greatest, he says, the son of man, me, yes, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We can give ourselves away to others. We can serve the Lord, serve our community, yes, knowing that, you know, death isn't the end. And that it's not about dying with the most money or the most likes on Facebook. Yes, if we want to be first, we'll be last. And that logic doesn't work unless we understand that Satan and death and the spirit of this age, yes, is what has been defeated. And finally, I'd just like to say a word about our contemporary situation. Yes, we, yes, as disciples of Jesus, as those who are commissioned with the message and empowered to bring the good news of the kingdom to other people, we need to affirm life. We live in a world of death. This world of death is seen uh, in every corner uh, of this planet. It's in the abortion industry. It's in the eugenics, the, the philosophy and the practice of eugenics that's spreading all over the world. You know, who needs old people? You know, I got rid of my, uh, my unwanted children through abortion. Why shouldn't I get rid of mom and dad when they get too old? Why should we spend money on them? It's um, in the violence that we tolerate, gang violence, criminal violence. It's uh, the way a lot of Christians go rah, rah, rah when their country is going to war. Now, sometimes war is an evil necessity. Or it's, it's looking the other way when there's poverty and deprivation. Yes, there needs to be a culture of life. The kingdom of heaven is about life. We should be the ones who stand up for life. Yes, and to stand up for those who are oppressed and for those who are being, having their lives taken from them. And the first, by the way, we do this for everyone, but first and foremost, we do it for those who are followers of Jesus. And Paul says, be good to everyone, or let your goodness to everyone be known, especially those in the household of faith. 
Yes? That's who we stand up for. There are Christians in Nigeria who are being killed. Yes? By Muslims. There is the chaos in Sudan. There are problems in Turkey with religious freedom. And so on and so forth. Yes? We have to be consistent and firm about life. That's one thing that Dwight taught me, and I never forgot it. All of this great theology, all of this talk about the kingdom of heaven, yes, all of this talk about appreciating uh, and digging deep into the Hebrew Bible and making it guidance and direction and instruction for, for our lives properly interpreted, all of this needs to be practical. Yes, there needs, it needs to deepen our discipleship. It needs to deepen our devotion. And it must always, yes, always, yes, lead us to some kind of action. It always must, we always must allow the Lord to challenge us. Not so that we're condemned and beaten up. It's not about beating up on the church. Yes, but it's about hearing the word of God and responding to it. So I'd just like to close again uh, with uh, a word that honors uh, Dwight Pryor. Um, for those of you who don't know him or are not familiar with him, you can um, have a look at the um, website, the Center for Judaic Christian Studies uh, in uh, Dayton, Ohio. And there are many... Uh, resources there by Dwight and others, and, and I can uh, commend them to you. But for me, Dwight really lived out this verse. This was the charge that God gave to Aaron and his sons. This is what the job of a priest was to be, um, a job of a teacher. You must distinguish between the holy and the common between the clean and the unclean. And you must teach the Israelites all the decrees of the Lord, all the decrees that the Lord has given them through Moses. And so may the memory of Dwight Pryor, yes, be a blessing, and may his good, good deeds, uh, his teaching, uh, his example, uh, may it continue to bring forth good fruit uh, not only in the lives of uh, us here at Christ Church, but in many thousands of people around the world. And Lord, once again, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.